Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Well, hello, I'm Tony Sager with the Center for Internet Security, and welcome to the CIS podcast series, Cybersecurity Where You Are. So uh, every episode, we try to feature another uh, interesting conversation, uh, preferably in plain English, about some of the key things that really affect our cyber lives. I'm joined this episode by my friend Brian DeValance. Welcome, Brian. Uh, Thanks for having me on today, Tony. It's uh, really a pleasure to uh, talk about this stuff with you. Yeah, our pleasure to have you here, Brian. So Brian is, um, I have to share a story with Brian from my days back at the National Security Agency. So I ran technical organizations. And uh, Brian, with all respect to to you, uh, I used to have to beg technical people to go to policy meetings down at the Pentagon, where they were trying to grapple with things like mobile code and sort of emerging technologies. And what are the uh, potential implications. So technical people tended to say, you know, I don't want to go to those policy meetings. They're really boring. And, you know, they don't talk about technology and I don't get what they what they have to say. Meanwhile, the policy folks were saying, I don't really want those technical people at my meeting because, man, they're, they're like really odd. And I don't understand a word of what they're saying either. So, you know, this has been uh, a big part of the history of cybersecurity is aligning these things. But it's, a, it's a, a theme that I think whose time has come. So we're going to explore that in today's episode. I know no one better to talk about this than Brian, who I've worked with for several years now and has lived this in multiple dimensions and really uh, looked at both the successes and the struggles in this area. Uh, Brian, for background, could you give us a little bit about sort of where you came from, your experience, and uh, kind of the, the things that help you think about this kind of problem? Well, sure, uh, Tony. And again, thanks again for the invitation. It's a real pleasure to be able to talk uh, uh, with such a giant in the industry like you. Uh, in fact, every time I share a microphone with you, I, I immediately remember one of my favorite basketball players, Hot Rod Hunley. I'm not sure if you remember Hot Rod, but <laughs> of course. He, was, uh, he was an All-America basketball player at the University of West Virginia. Uh, but he had the misfortune to play with an LA, LA Laker team that had Wilt Chamberlain, Jerry West, <laughs> and Hudson Baylor. So uh, it's no surprise that he went from being an All-America at West Virginia to uh, uh, getting a lot of pine time uh, as a reserve. But at, at the end of his career, he was asked uh, what he thought his NBA highlight had been. And he said, well, that's easy. He said, that must have been the night that uh, Elgin Baylor and I combined to score 81 points in Madison Square Garden. Elgin had 79 of those 81 points. So uh, always a pleasure, Tony, but uh, I'm going to certainly try to do my best to add a couple of free throws to your 79 points today. But um uh, mostly, uh, my experience has been in government law. Uh, I've been really lucky. I, I tell my kids, uh, you know, if you work hard in school, uh, you end up with having some choices when you get to be an adult. Maybe, you know, options are always good, right? So uh, one of the most important choices you, you get to make as an adult is how are you going to spend your time away from your family? Uh, you know, what, what, what's your work? What, what are you involved in? And so getting to choose something as your occupation is a real luxury, and I've been really lucky. Um, since I was 10, I wanted to be uh, in the work of the government, uh, playing some minor role in, in, in helping to govern this great uh, country uh, where average citizens get to con- contribute. So we're not in the old days of the monarchs or uh, in the career um, you know, technocrats from you know, the Soviet Union or whatever. I mean, average citizens uh, uh, make this, this government go. So I was lucky to get to go to a great college and then law school and practice law for a while. And, uh, but fortunately, I was able to end up... Um, 
when we're working on the senior staff of uh, two governors and uh, the U.S. Attorney General and, uh, and then later two Secretaries of Homeland Security. So I've been blessed and uh, uh, had a chance to uh, uh, not only contribute something, uh, but learn a lot along the way. So as you say, most recently I've been trying to deploy that knowledge, uh, uh, helping CIS with policy and, and government stuff. So thanks for having me on. Yep, great, great backstory there, Brian. Appreciate it. And you know, and you know some of my story, right? Coming up in a, a, a enlisted army family, and this idea of public service, I think, is still a noble calling. And it's great to see good people, you know, feel that way about it. So, so this business of uh, cybersecurity, you know, I grew up in it. The focus was on technology, wizardry, you know, the kind of the magic of uh, mathematics and, and engineering and all this. And you know, and that that was kind of the dream of the I'll say '70s and '80s when I was uh, early in this, right? That we would kind of invent our way to security or come up with the right idea or the right product or the right thing. And you know, that doesn't look like it's going to happen in my my lifetime. So so tell me about though. The, the role of policy, like why, why should we care? What, what a technologist should, and, and we as citizens, uh, what, what role does it play in dealing with the complexities of new technology? Well, it's a, a great question. And, and uh, really, uh, the way I look at it is uh, both in the cybersecurity world and other uh, areas is that policy is always the, the other side of the coin to sort of the technical uh, or mechanical uh, solutions that's, that are uh, looking to be deployed and solving some of our society's uh, biggest problems. So what, what it ultimately does is it creates the legal and operational environment in which the technical side can do its thing and solve these problems. Uh, you've got to have structure. You've got to have rules in a society. Uh, I was just talking to that, that with my high school senior the other day, and uh, you need, you need uh, uh, simple rules like which side of the street do cars drive on? Uh, because if you didn't have rules and and uh, lanes in the road, both literally and figuratively, uh, you're gonna have chaos. And so, so that's what the policy does. It kind of creates this legal and operational environment. Um, and for example, like uh, if the government is mandating action or not is one of the questions that uh, gets to be asked of all industries. And if it's mandating something, then things move to implementing whatever solutions that comply with the regulation. Um, and you know, this was obvious when when states, you know, 50 years ago or so, tried to you know, reduce traffic fatalities, you know, they lowered the speed limits, they mandated production of safer cars, they required seatbelt usage, etc. Um, and it became less of what are we going to do to save lives to implementing policy solutions chosen by the policymakers, and then uh, then things resulted from that, right? Policymakers had to make, uh, I'm sorry, manufacturers had to make uh, safer cars, they saw seatbelts, drivers had to wear them, law enforcement wrote tickets to the, the people who. Uh, violated uh, speeding laws or seatbelt laws, etc. So, in cybersecurity, I think it's it's just a fantastic and interesting place to be right now, because we're at this very beginning stage of our policy development. We're still trying to figure out what these policy solutions are going to be uh, that will solve, that will guide technologists, and then together with the policy and the technology, we're going to be, be able to solve some problems. So, uh, ideally, what happens if it works right? The policymakers will work with the technologists so that we're creating smart policy that then can be implemented and then be quicker to solve the problem. So um, um, it's, it is important to look at both. And, and you're right about that, uh, is that sometimes uh, the policy people uh, don't really get or, or want to include the technical people and, and vice versa. So uh, I was at one meeting, Tony, and you'll appreciate this based on uh, your, your NSA story. Um, um, this was a meeting about 10 years ago, and we did have policy and technical people in the same room. And there was definitely 
people talking past each other. And one person, uh, one of the policy guys got up and said, you know, next time you come, you need to bring your own subtitles so I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and then the technology guy said, I was just going to say the same thing about you. And so uh, clearly you know, there was a, there's a disconnect. And, and I think, again, when it's working right, uh, you need to decide early on. You need to find a way to work together. And uh, together we'll, we'll solve problems uh, better and faster. So. Uh, no, that's that, that's wonderful, you know, and that. But, but I guess recognizing you have a problem is the first step. So exactly. we, we need that opportunity, you know. And to, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard over the decades, and I heard it recently as a couple months ago, right? One of the wizards that that came before me, people whose papers I read and so forth, uh, stand up in a meeting and they have what I call the "get off my lawn" moment, you know, where they lecture the group about, you know, we solved that problem in 1960 whatever with the you know technology up to frats nine thousand. And, um, you know, I didn't understand that when I was young, but it makes me feel sad when I'm older, right? And it's, it's sort of true they solved the technical problem, but clearly it, it wasn't something that became part of the way we socially think of a solution to that problem, right? And I think part of it is this interplay with uh, policy and can you talk a little bit about sort of the interplay with what I would call uh, economics, you know, the marketplace with policy, with technology and how how all those have to come together? Because that was really part of the answer that you just gave. Yeah, it's it's really, um, <clears throat> it's again, a great question, Tony. And, and uh, I think the thing that that um, um, is, is important in, in, in our area, the cybersecurity area, is that there is no legal minimum standard of cybersecurity. So, uh, and, and this is a function of a lot of things. I think it's, again, the fact that we're pretty new as, a, as an industry. Uh, but you look at, you know, cars, as I just mentioned, planes, trains, TV, banking, whatever, all these industries, healthcare, they all have legal standards, uh, legal minimum standards of, of, of care. And so um, aside from a few sectors uh, with regard to cybersecurity, it's all largely voluntary. And so unfortunately, what that means is that, you know, not only do organizations not have to do anything to improve their cybersecurity, but we as a society... Uh, need to get these organizations to figure out what the right thing to do is and then to do it voluntarily. So when you think about it, uh, that's pretty incredible. When you take a step back and say, this is this is the state of our cyber policy. Um, um, not to say it's, a, it, it, it's, it's, it's not a good place to be, but the question is, you know, how, how is it working? So um, with no minimum standard, uh, from a broad uh, overview perspective, we are in what I like to call the wild, wild west. Everyone is largely on their own and making up their own solutions, etc. Um, but, you know, I mean, uh, um, as I mentioned, uh, you know, cybersecurity is really not that unique. It's It's been this way in the development of all American industries, like railroad, telegraph, oil and gas, telephone, radio and television, etc. Yeah, I think that's, that's fair, Brian. And I think, you know, again, as social creatures, right, we have faced decisions about risk for our entire lifetime, you know, for, for the lifetime of humanity. And as we try to organize into communities, we have to have a way to, to think about these kinds of things. And, um, you know, I think one of the, the issues, you talked about uh, the need for a, a basic standard or sort of a minimum, right? What would I expect? I, I, one of the reasons we do that, I assume, uh, socially, is that most people cannot figure out this out on their own or they can't influence it on their own, right? You can't have a sort of pure market or pure decision because consumers can't make a decision about is something uh, cyber safer than another thing, right? There's just too many, too many unknowns in there and too much technology and too much jargon. So, so it seems reasonable. And I think the idea of looking at 
other domains, and, and we have treated cyber as special, right? Especially those of us that work in it. <laughs> but I always say uh, uh, the wizardry model of cybersecurity is better job security for folks like me than it is public policy, right? It, it, you know, if we treat it as something that's, that's sort of uh, too noble for a minimum standard, then we'll never get past this, this notion of wizardry. So I think that's a, an important part of it. So, so your your assessment, uh, and I think I would concur, is that we're still in a bit of a wild west phase figuring this out. But w but we look at other domains, right? And and it's taken how, how long did it take to sort some of these things out, in in other domains, decades? I mean, longer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's that's the nature of you know. I think uh, yeah, we can't freak out over the fact that it's taking quote too long to to figure this out. I mean, it did you know. It's, it, you're exactly right. It took a while to figure out how to regulate the railroads and telegraph, et cetera. And so, you know, it's a process where co Congress is urged to stay out of the way while we, well, these new industries solve problems, create jobs. And then sooner or later, what happens is that needs arise to provide safeguards uh, for this emerging industry. And then the state and locals start passing their own laws to deal with it. And then finally, the industry will say, okay, Congress, we'd rather have one standard, one national standard than 100 state and local ones. And so, I think we're getting there. Uh, again, if you take a step back and look at it, um, um, and I, I guess you know, roughly speaking, you know, we're within probably a decade of, 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 of establishing a you know a, a national um, a minimum standard. But you know, until you, until we do, we're in the in this sort of you know we're up to requiring on this voluntary action in the Wild Wild West. And I think uh, you know I think CIS and others have done a good job of of uh, proselytizing what this uh, voluntary action could be. You just said something I think is really important. Uh, until government says, here is specifically what you should do or, or what you must do, uh, the menu is too large. So how can you expect, uh, you know, the pizza parlor on the, on the corner or even Domino's uh, to, to you know, national you know, uh, business to really kind of sift through all the clutter and figure out what the right thing to do is to defend their networks? It's hard, and so um, that that freedom um, uh, uh, permits people to then pretty much do anything, and then uh, and then we have to kind of trial by error figure out what works. So places like CIS is out there, you know, talking about you know really good uh, uh, voluntary um, standards to to improve their network security. So uh, that's why I love working with CIS is because we're we're uh, you know we're, we're changing minds, uh, you know, one one company at a time or one industry at a time. Well, I think this this notion also, it seems like the times are different, right? There's a general sort of social distrust of central governments. There's a skepticism about, you know, sort of top-down mandating of, of um, you know, any anything specific like requirements under regulation. And, you know, it seems to me that the, the, the role and the need for independent sources, right, you know, that in, comp in concert with government, in concert with sort of regulatory mechanisms uh, are, are more important than ever. Right, you you need a way to sort of bring opinions together, and I think that's one of the factors that that uh, you know is different than any other sort of factors that make cybersecurity different. You know, I think you hinted at a couple of them, in that you know when we look at sort of say, more uh, um, traditional safety issues, you can have some statistics that really reinforce one behavior is better than another. Right, you can have scientific studies about the strength of materials and sort of more concrete things to work with, and it, it seems like that's one of the things that's missing here, or the things that you know you need something to build a policy on, right? A sensible policy. Any any thoughts about the what's different about cyber? Is is it really special, or is it the, uh, just we just haven't gotten there yet? 
it's a couple of things. I, I think that um, it is different, and uh, and it's it's different. You know, to you go back to that car analogy. I mean, um, I don't think people think too much about uh, how the regulations uh, uh, about how cars are built uh, bothers them, and they think, oh well, at least somebody's trying to uh, you know make our cars safer. Uh, but the internet, for example, in the cyber world is such um, a conduit for everyone's life to do everything. I mean, uh, you know, we, we obviously during the pandemic, I think everyone has worked through uh, the internet, uh, but you're also shopping online and you're getting your entertainment online. And, uh, you know, and to do that, you need a lot of personal information uh, that you're sharing um, uh, with credit card companies uh, to, to make all of this work, etc. And so I think that becomes that, that notion of the exposure of your private information, which, you know, doesn't uh, get uh, brought into play when when uh, when there are laws to make the cars build safer cars. But um, so I think that that personal interface with this technology uh, uh, brings in uh, uh, into play all these issues relating to our uh, individual freedoms, uh, privacy, civil rights, etc. Um, uh, are, are exposed and therefore uh, um, there's going to be greater scrutiny as to what those laws are and who are making those laws. So I, I think that's an excellent point that you make is that uh, because we've become so dependent upon it and because so much of our life is hanging out there on the internet somewhere, I think it becomes personal and therefore um, um, uh, more critical that we're getting this right and therefore the scrutiny is high. Yeah, you make a good point, Brian. I mean, it's, there is a lot that I'll say is uh, the same as traditional uh, areas of risk. And, and, and so we, we don't want to lose sight of that. But, you know, this idea of the technology connecting all of us, you know, not just in a technical sense, but in information and in action sense, right? We're, we're interacting constantly with parties. We, we have no idea who they are. And I always say that, you, you know, trust or confidence in that decision. Is it safe to hand you my credit card or is it safe to drive a car? Or, you know, in cyberspace, most of that is happening out of your view and out of your ability to even understand. And so... You know, when you go to a car, you, 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 you take it as an article of faith, right, that the car has met building specific or certain specifications and material strength and, you know, that there's a, been testing and lots of things have happened. And you can reasonably assume that, that those have happened, right? And if someone did not you know, fail to do their part, then you have a sort of means to deal with that, right, the little system or whatever. But so much of this trust and negotiation of, of trust, you know, should I have confidence in this transaction, is just completely hidden to the public in cyberspace. And there's no, it's not clear that there's any rhyme or reason underneath it, right? A lot of things happen that are really very uncontrolled. So I think it, it does make it uh, complicated, much more complicated. Uh, at the same time, you know, we can't lose sight of, um, you know, the need for people to make reasonable decisions about becoming expert technologists. So I think that's all fair. The, the, um, so for for a non-lawyer, you can help me out, Brian. I, you know, policymakers deal in a in a very specialized kind of a language. And one of the things that you and I have talked about in the past are the use of terms like reasonableness, uh, known hazards, uh, cost effectiveness of a regulation, right? Have a need to demonstrate that. Uh, can you, um, you know, for the layperson or the non, you know, uh, policymaker, th those mean something. But for the policymaker, they have a little more specific. Uh, intention behind them, and can you tell me how do we sort that out? Right, what is that? Is that left for us to decide, the courts to decide, or is it just left open? Or how, you know, how will how can we resolve those in a way that's repeatable? Well, uh, uh, the question is a good one, especially given that we're living in this world without a, a defined uh, minimum standard of information security. 
<clears throat> let me let me just lead off with the uh, uh, one of the words that's sort of uh, uh, hot right now, which is reasonableness, and mm -hmm. uh, especially with no uh, minimum standard of, uh, of cybersecurity, um, there's no clear legal requirement. Um, it becomes the bit of the guiding force, and so um, again, without this this uh, statute that, uh, that that governs, uh, organizations are still being sued and held liable for data breaches, for example, and so. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, some would say, well, how can they, how can that be when there's no actual legal standard, uh, no specific standard? And so, um, really, um, um, uh, the law will then look for informal best practices. The, in tort law, for example, which is the law of negligence, um, <clears throat> a person is negligent and therefore liable for damages, uh, even if there's no law that governs. If a person has been found to have failed to exercise ordinary care that a reasonable, reasonable person would give under those circumstances. And so it's this traditional that goes back uh, to English law from centuries ago, uh, that, that the care that a reasonable person would exercise in a particular situation is generally thought to be the standard uh, of due care. And so that's the minimum that you have to do to be held, uh, avoid from being held liable. So there's no actual statutory legal standard, but you can still be sued in a, for damages if you are a company that uh, that has a breach and that you've exposed uh, some of your customers' PII. And so um, then it becomes this, uh, they have to go back and, uh, and apply this sort of uh, imperfect um, reasonable man standard. Uh, and so that becomes um, far less important, important if Congress you know, finally establishes, or when they finally establish a legal standard. Um, and that legal standard could be something like, uh, you know, uh, you must uh, organizations must implement the NIST framework or the CIS critical security controls. Um, and then with that st clear standard, then the question becomes: Well, did you implement the controls or not? You know, otherwise, we have to we have to go through this process of defining what reasonable is, and that's a less objective and more subjective approach. You know, you'd have to say. Uh, what did you do that uh, that shows you did do this ordinary care? Do you have a CISO? Do you have a CIO? Did you, did you do an assessment? Did you address, you know, what did you do to address any gaps that you had? What tools do you use? All that sort of stuff. Instead of just did you implement these this minimum standard? So the reasonable standard is a little more art than science, but it's what we've got right now. And, uh, you know, I think everyone's going to be hearing a lot more about that until Congress decides to, um, to, to uh, occupy the field, if you will. Yeah, no, that's great. And, you know, I, I'm going to uh, reveal my uh, naivety here, <laughs> right? You know, I used to think, now, fortunately, I've, I've, I've had uh, no negative rushes with the law in my time, but I, I tended to think of the law as a digital process, right? You, you, you know, you fall afoul of the law or you don't, right? You follow, you don't. And of course, you know, in, in the discussions with folks like you, oh, they, it's actually a very analog process, right? It's messy and it builds up and it's, there are, in fact, things that are unclear. There's good intentions in the law, but, you know, there's a question of interpretation, and some of that just has to be created over time. And so I think that's, that's um, it makes sense, you know, again, as a social process as opposed to a sort of algorithmic one that, that, that we won't have. So, so, so Brian, I, I know you, you track this kind of stuff carefully and, um, you know, are, are active in many. Give, give me some signs of hope. Any progress here or what you'll be looking for as the examples for the future, right? Are, are there any things paving the way for us? Sure. I, I, I think, uh, um, you know, we look at some of the more recent uh, data breaches and, and, and things like that, and we say, it, you know, the attacks are getting worse and, you know, we're not, we're not making much progress, but, but we really are. I think uh, uh, we've made a, a fair amount of progress over the last decade, and 
and uh, I have high hopes for the for the near future too. Uh, um, at the at the federal government level, you know, I think we have to start with the fact that Congress last year passed about twenty some cybersecurity laws last year based on this expert uh, Solarium Cybersecurity Commission uh, that was made up of cyber experts. That's that's a great example of sort of technical people and policy people coming together, and they came out with a bunch of recommendations. And last year, uh, in last Congress. Uh, Congress passed, you know, more than 20 of these laws, uh, which provide uh, little bits and pieces of solid ground to stand on. Uh, and so that's uh, that was, I think, uh, 2020 was actually a really good year. We have a new executive order that deals with cybersecurity uh, under uh, President Biden. Um, and then uh, related to both of those things, we now have a, a new uh, national cyber director, the, what's, what was called the Cyber Czar. Um, which was created by one of those legislative um, uh, acts that were passed last year and then appointed this year by President Biden. And that's a position that's um, really going to be coordinating all of the national cyber, um, civilian cyber policy at the federal level. But not only does it uh, deal with uh, uh, sort of the federal civilian cybersecurity, but it really, uh, the things that we do with the federal government can... um, um, serve as uh, a megaphone to kind of set the tone and best practices for uh, the rest of the United States. And so our first cyber czar was just uh, uh, confirmed by the United States Senate, uh, Senate uh, Chris Inglis, um, a former colleague of yours at the NSA, uh, uh, super uh, great technical expert, as well as understanding the policy stuff. He was deputy secretary at NSA. So he's going to be really uh, a great first national cyber director for us. And um, I think that's going to be a great start. And then, you know, we have a couple of other new people in the administration. Uh, the new secretary of DHS, Ali Mayorkas, uh, uh, is a big supporter of cybersecurity. Uh, he uh, chaired a, a, when he was, uh, he was the co-chair of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Cybersecurity Committee, uh, was deputy secretary before and, and did a lot of uh, cyber stuff. So I think he's going to be uh, a great leader. Uh, and then we now have, a, a, a statutorily, a, a couple of years ago, a new component at DHS, um, the cybersecurity um uh, that's going to coordinate cybersecurity policy, CISA. And that has the operational lead of defending federal civilian cyber networks and is the point of contact for state and local and private sector folks. And the new director there of CISA, Jenny Sterley, was also just confirmed. And so I think that you really have a nice new team uh, that's going to be leading the way in the federal government. And if they can work with Congress to pass a few more goals, I think that we're going to be in good stead. But I think we're on our way. And then, of course, you just you, you suggested this, uh, Tony, at the state and local level. Um, uh, again, uh, uh, innovation often happens uh, at the states first, like we kind of hit it at a few minutes ago. Sometimes it takes a while for the United States Congress and the federal government to start moving. And so um, you've really had a lot of interest in the last three or four or five years at the state and local level. The National Governors Association, uh, you, you know, uh, Tony, uh, they, they uh, uh, endorsed a, a cyber initiative about five or six years ago uh, that would look at cyber hygiene. Uh, the chair of the NGA a couple of years ago had his entire chair's initiative on cybersecurity. That helped advance the ball in all 56 states and territories. And every year now, they're doing a special cyber uh, academy where they'll choose five states to really drill down on on things to do and, and ways to improve it. So the governors are on top of it. Uh, the National Association of State CIOs, very active in educating their members, the state CIOs. Uh, the National Association of Counties, Rita Reynolds is their new uh, uh, CIO, and she is uh, uh, really uh, coordinating and, and charging up the, the, the counties um, 
And it's harder for the counties because a lot of the counties are small. So these small organizations, there's a special risk with because there's not a lot of not a lot of resources for them. So she's doing great stuff. Uh, the governor's appointing, uh, creating executive orders. The governor of Kansas just two weeks ago created a cybersecurity task force. That's great news. And then well, one of my favorites, uh, and Tony, you know this well, uh, several state legislators are not waiting for the uh, Congress to act, but they're creating new uh, state laws that incentivize the voluntary adoption of cyber best practices. So Ohio, Utah, Connecticut have all passed bills. And why this is important is that since we're in this sort of no regulatory period, this wild, wild west period, um, and we're just relying on people to voluntarily do the right thing, to create some incentives uh, for these organizations to do the right thing can be largely, uh, hugely uh, helpful to um, them trying to do the right thing because, again, we're not required to do it. So I think those are all really good signs for the uh, for our state and local government. So I think we are making progress and we just have to keep, stick with, uh, stick, keep sticking with it. Yeah, Brian, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think that, um, you know, I've often said, uh, so I'm, I'm approaching 45 years of this stuff now, and I said, you, you can't last this long unless you're either a hopeless optimist or a, or a credible cynic, and either position has plenty of data, right, to back it up. But I, I do feel like there's a new energy, you know, uh, in, uh, you know in, the, in the legislative process and the top of government, uh, new awareness, you know, and, and I've been a part of some, you know, many a great report with good intentions and big ideas has been sitting on the shelf for decades, you know, and we tend to write the, the same report a few years later and a few years later, but something does feel different this time. I think there is both the energy, the new players, and a recognition of how foundational this is, right, to our success as an economy and as a nation. And so, you know, this, it's not something that we can afford to admire any longer or, you know, gnash or shake our fist and, uh, you know, wail and gnashing our teeth. There really is a sense of action and a lot of things, and those are great examples that you gave. And so, yeah, I think, again, it could be, it's easy to be cynical in this business because there's plenty of things you could point to. But I think, you know, the general feeling uh, that I have and that I know you share is that, you know, hey, maybe this is it. And also, there are, there are quite a few of us that I would say are kind of like the early generation uh, people who were in the fight who are, are seeing our last chance to make a difference. And I think a lot of those folks are doing things now they're in a great position in their lives and careers. They know how important this is, and they uh, have an opportunity to, to make a difference here. So I think that all really matters. So, so, so Brian, uh, let me just shift gears, and then we'll wrap up here. You know, you, so you, you've worked at the boundary, not boundary, but sort of the, the intersection of sort of policy and technology for, for the years that I've known you. Do you have any thoughts on what you wish every, every policymaker understood about? You know, what are the things that you've learned over the last few years that you think are really important for some of the folks that you talk to and, and that um, uh, count on you for advice? Well, uh, uh, that really is a, a question that, uh, that should be uh, asked of every policy person and technology person, too. I, I think that's uh, uh, it's back to the point about needing to work together. I, I think one of the reasons, I, two, answer, two lines of thinking here in answering that question. Um, I, I think one of, the, one of the main reasons that cyber is really such a difficult topic um, uh, to get our heads around and, and get to the problem where we're solving problems um, and, and this, I'm going to go back to our, our mutual friend, Jane Lute, who uh, used to be the deputy secretary at, uh, at DHS and uh, noted uh, uh, cyber expert. But um, she noticed this a year ago, and it really, uh, we haven't made much progress in this. And I think that uh, we have to focus on this question and that, uh, or problem. And that's, and that's her observation that we haven't yet as a society quite figured out what the role of government should be in cybersecurity. And so, so uh, I think that's, 
that is our starting point when we think about what what policymakers need to think about in terms of cybersecurity. And I, and I think that um, you know we certainly know what the role of government is in other areas. And, and in Jane's illustration, she she compares uh, national security with homeland security. Right? The federal government has a monopoly interest when it comes to national security. You were in that field for a long time. Only federal actors, right? So White House, DOD, NSA, State Department, intelligence community, etc. So so that's a monopoly interest. When with Homeland Security, DHS is just the federal partner working with its uh, mostly really with its other two partners, which is the state and local community and the private sector. So to DOD, I think uh, the private sector are vendors or stakeholders at best. And in in, in um, I, I think in Homeland Security, uh, the private sector is actually an active actor trying to help us defend our 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 homeland. And cyber is much more like homeland security than national security. So. This whole issue about what the precise role of government is, I think, unfortunately, still needs resolving uh, before we actually uh, finish tackling this stuff, and um, and so we're going to struggle a little bit. But but so that's the general, I think, uh, uh, setup for for the answer to your question. But um, what I would say is is the policy need policymakers need to understand about technology is that it's not magic. And you, you alluded to this earlier, uh, Tony, uh, is that, um, you know, people always default to say, oh, you know, well, you know, technology will fix that. I've got a, I've got a friend who uh, was never too health conscious because he said, oh, by the time I get to be 70 years old, they'll find a way to freeze me and bring me back when they, when they, when they figure out a solution for my health problem. And by the way, uh, he and I are closing in on that magic date and, and, and I don't think he's uh, he, that was not a smart bet, let's put it that way. So, uh, and, and another good friend of mine who was very senior in the federal government, uh, his solution for everything literally was, well, we'll just put a chip in it. Well, you know, I know that's shorthand for the uh, voodoo that you guys do, uh, and it sure seems like magic, right? So TV is still magic. Search engines to me are magic. Wi-Fi is magic. The specific act of the magic differs, but, you know, uh, it's certainly easy to understand that it is. But it's not really mag magic, right? These advancements are made by humans, and they can only do what they can do. And and progress sure seems fast when you, you know, when you take a step back, you know? Like, one of my favorite examples is, you know, we went from Kitty Hawk to the moon in 66 years, you know? And that, you know, that's pretty profound. But many of these advancements were permitted... Um, by slow, steady scientific trial and error, obviously sped up by World War II and then the Cold War and the, and the investment in technology. So, we're, you know, the bottom line is you can't, policymakers cannot expect the technologists to wave a wand and fix these intractable problems. So um, I think that's that's something that the policymakers need to understand. And then I think from the other side of the coin, I think the tech, tech community needs to first understand a little bit more and better about how government works. And so... Some of the tech giants, fam famously or infamously, didn't even have offices in D.C. 10 or so years ago, right? And so to understand the process, which is slow and, uh, you know, always slow and supposed to be slow, it's always a negotiation. And so there's a trade-off on both um, the substance of the policy and how it gets paid for. So anyway, long story short is that uh, we all need to get back to Jane's question of a decade ago, and that's, you know, we need to figure out what the role is. And then once we have that defined and the role of the private sector and state and local governments, then we can kind of roll up our sleeves and start uh, passing good policy that will help us solve these problems. Yeah, I think that's a great, great perspective, Brian. And I think you're right. It's, these are more complex times, right? The more dynamic 
and there's no pure technical answer and there's no there's, there's no independent policy answer and so being able to pull them together you know by by smart folks uh, you know across that spectrum really is essential right otherwise we get policy that doesn't doesn't implement technology that never happens and so i think there's all kinds of um, uh, challenges, but also excitement in front of us for that. So, Brian, I'll give you la- last chance. Any any last thought you want to leave the, our audience with, or any any other uh, sort of big message that's on your mind that you care to well, share? Well, uh, uh, thanks for the uh, the opportunity to, uh, uh, to to say that to me. I, I would say that because of the incidents that have happened in the last six months with um, uh, Solar Winds and Microsoft Exchange and the Colonial Pipeline. I think that we've really had um, a bit of a microscope put back on the cyber uh, defenses of the United States. And, um, and as we've talked about uh, today, there's no mandatory requirements that we do anything in particular. And we're, we're left with these voluntary, um, this voluntary construct uh, that's based in the critical infrastructure um, construct that started back in the uh, 25 years ago, actually in the mid nineties. Um, and that is this voluntary model where we're all supposed to work together to fix these problems. I think that this is a great opportunity before we get to these required uh, solutions uh, that we really get together with this new Congress and the, and the new uh, leadership in the uh, executive branch uh, to work together through public-private partnerships to tackle specific things, you know, discrete uh, uh, problems, not broad problems, but, but individual problems. And work together in these with these three partners, so the federal government, state and local governments, and the private sector, to try to get stuff done through these public-private partnerships. And I think that that will be, <clears throat> in many ways, a really good test to see if this voluntary construct will work. And um, I hope that it does. I think we can make great strides if we do it. And if if it doesn't work, I think you know the the, the next step then is is that we're going to have to get Congress to act. And so, um, long way of saying is that. Uh, we've had some progress. Uh, we've got a tool to make this progress, even though uh, additional progress, even though you know w- without sort of mandates from Congress. But I think we have to act on those things and put together some good public-private partnerships and solve problems. Otherwise, you know, uh, uh, I think we might prove, unfortunately, that the model doesn't work, and we've got to def- get back to uh, congressional regulation. So uh, I hope I hope we can do it voluntarily, and, and we'll have a chance to prove it. So uh, I look forward to the next few years. All right, thanks, Brian. Great closing, great closing thought and uh, inspiration. Uh, you know, appreciate it. That, and if I were sending my uh, folks from NSA off to a policy meeting with you, I would tell them, uh, please go. You'll learn so much from Brian. So we really appreciate the chance to have you join us here on the podcast. And I hope I'm sure there'll be another topic another time. But thank you thank again you. for your time today. And for the audience, uh, well, that's that's it for today's episode. It's been a pleasure. Uh, please feel free subscribe to what we're doing. This is what we do, uh, try to talk about some of the issues that affect us all and try to get down to a, a discussion that really is helpful and is in a language that makes sense to us all that can really help us grapple with some really uh, foundational issues about the future of our economy, of our society, etc. So until next time, I'm Tony Sager with the Center for Internet Security and look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.